There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is David Owen. And this is another long listen. I know... By usual podcast standards, these episodes are probably quite long anyway. But on the back of Louise Casey, who was two hours, here's David Owen with a good hour and a half at the very least. And every single second of it is brilliant because, of course, it is. What an amazing guest. What an amazing person to be able to sit down with and pick his brain. More on that in a second. Don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And this... <laughs> It's amazing in the history of the show. The thing that's really gained traction as a theme, as a topic, is people embarrassing themselves in front of politicians or politicians embarrassing themselves in front of you or just seeing them in strange places. Simon's been in touch. Um, he says, as a sporadic listener who then catches up in binge listening sessions. I don't think binge listening is as bad for your health as binge uh, drinking, Simon, so you're probably fine. And I do that with the podcasts I like as well. Uh, he said, I've just heard you've been doing politicians on holiday, politicians embarrassing stories. And I think I have a story that crosses both. In February 1997, myself, then 12, and my sister Harriet, then 10, and brother Miles, then 8, were due to be taking our first holiday on a plane, which would have been considerably less stressful for my poor mum had Air Zimbabwe not gone on strike a few days before we were due to leave. Consequently, the airline put us up in a five-star hotel in Gatwick, where we spent the day running around like maniacs, misbehaving in the swimming pool and riding the train backwards and forwards between the north and south terminals for hours at a time. Simon, I would still love to do that now. He says it was quite possibly the best 36 hours of our young lives, although I'm not sure I can say the same for the other clientele who paid good money to avoid this sort of raucousness. Simon, you should write dramas. You're a great uh, writer of drama. Anyway, he says... The morning before we got put on an alternative flight, we're all tucking into the complimentary breakfast, which would have been the highlight for me as well, when my brother wandered off to the toilet. He came back a few minutes later and told us that a strange man had just shaken his hand in the toilet. The rest of us were pretty concerned about this revelation, but tried to play it calmly while establishing more facts. According to Miles, he'd finished having a wee and was washing his hands when this man entered the toilet. Miles felt the man's face was familiar, so just stared at him in the way that an eight-year-old with few social boundaries is prone to. Apparently, the stranger then said, hello, young man, and reached out his hand for Miles to shake, which he did happily uh, before returning to us. Upon hearing this potentially sinister tale, my mum got up to march over and asked this strange man what he thought he was doing, but before she left the toilet door, across the foyer from us opened, and Miles shouted, that's the man, it was none other. I mean, I'd love to know who everyone's guessing this is going to be now. I mean, you can't get bigger than John Major, presumably flying somewhere himself on parliamentary business or perhaps a holiday preceding the upcoming election. 
my mum's somewhat flustered and evidently not ready to accuse the prime minister of indecent contact with a child in a public bathroom, decided not to pursue him. And to this day, it remains a favourite anecdote of Miles and the rest of the family. Simon, <laughs> I don't think it's going to take a lot to top that, but if you can, get in touch, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And if anyone listening, indeed, John, <laughs> Mr Major, if you're listening, if you, if you recall that encounter... Do let us know. If you work for John Major, ask him. Get in touch. Politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. My word. I mean, I don't think a prime minister would do that these days. Um, but, uh, you know, that was 1992. And uh, my word, what a story. Um, yes, and before uh, I come on to David Owen, don't forget the political party returns to the stage on Monday, just a couple of days, the 24th of May with Peter Mandelson and Saeed Avasi. I cannot wait at the Garrick Theatre in London's glittering West End. Then on the 25th of May with Keir Starmer and Andrea Leadsom. And on the 2nd of June at the wonderful Vaudeville Theatre with Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh. They're all socially distanced. Uh, they're all done within COVID guidelines. The last few tickets are available at mattford.com slash live. I'll put a link in the blurb. Um, and I've just announced in the last couple of days, Going to the Edinburgh Festival with my brand new show, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right. News on tickets for that uh, will follow in the coming uh, weeks. So lots of great news. And I cannot tell you how stimulating, just how magical this conversation with David Owen was. Um, without wanting to repeat myself, whenever I have a guest of David's stature or class, it is a very different type of interview to interviewing someone who's just become an MP or, or someone who's been an advisor. And it is like those episodes with Ken Clark and Malcolm Rifkin and Michael Heseltine, particularly as we conducted this over Zoom, David Owen still looks the same. He's got the same hair. He's got that same distinctive look. He looks fantastic. He's immaculate. Um, and we talk about spitting image in his puppet. And I guess in a way that was, a, of course, a caricature of his appearance, but He's still all there. He's still absolutely pin sharp, still looks really dashing, still looks really handsome, still really sharp in the mind. So it was just a pleasure talking to him about so many things and not just the things that uh, I, I should have talked to him about, about the SDP, about the Liberal Alliance, about why that uh, in the end didn't work, about why he didn't want to go into a, a, an arrangement with the Liberals and all stuff like that, the distinction between his politics, about where he sees his own politics, his relationship with the Labour Party. And he's got loads to say about contemporary politics, particularly about the NHS, particularly about Labour. But also, he was Foreign Secretary at 38. I'm 38. We do cover this in the interview. The thought of being foreign secretary at my age <laughs> fills me with dread. And of course, would fill the country with even more dread. But my, that feels very young to be holding one of the great officers of state. Um, I do realise, by the way, that older listeners uh, will uh, will probably not appreciate that sort of... I mean, it's the same as when you start to become the same age as footballers. It makes you realise, actually, I'm slightly getting on a bit. But anyway... Not only do we talk about his relationship with Roy Jenkins and the SDP, it's just a fantastic exploration of an amazing period in British history, but also, um, uh, he, <laughs> I don't want to give too much away because it's brilliant, but I guess relations with the Conservatives and Labour. But as Foreign Secretary at that time, that means he ends up dealing with people like Robert Mugabe quite a lot. Um, Ronald Reagan, there's a great story about Reagan, and the incredible tale of what happens when David Owen testifies at the trial of Slobodan Milosevic. And he's got a new book coming out about Russia. So this is just 
a, a phenomenal mix of picking the brain of a, of a phenomenal political mind and, and getting all his expertise about modern politics. You know, how often do you think, oh, it'd be amazing if we could hear what Churchill thought about the modern Conservative Party? You know, what would Churchill have said about Brexit, for instance? Well, what would David Owen think of the modern Labour Party? Because that's the sort of level it's at. He is a titan of modern British political history and to be able to sit down with him for an hour and a half um, and could have easily done longer, as always. Anyway, my word, this was just like going to another world. And he's still razor sharp, still passionate, remembers everything so clearly. It's just incredible. I'm now going to shut up and let you enjoy this treat, this chat with Lord David Owen. Uh, Lord Owen, how should I address you? Should I address you as Lord Owen? Can I call you David? Call me David. And uh, another thing I wanted to ask you, actually, just because you sit as an independent social democrat in the House of Lords, I think I've got that right. Are you the last social democrat left in the Houses of Parliament? Well, my wife, of course, is not in the House of Lords. She still considers herself a member of the Social Democratic Party. I I'm afraid, having had to close it down, I can't claim that, but I, it still is the title that most suits me. Um, but there is a reason for it. Uh, when David Miliband was standing, I felt I wanted to give some money to the Labour Party to help him win. It didn't work, unfortunately, but I, I, I deliberately chose to give enough money to have to be declared and therefore I could no longer go on conscientiously being a crossbencher. I, I think a lot of crossbenchers are actually politically uh, a line, but uh, I, I wanted the clarity. I wasn't any longer, um, it could be seen as sort of neutral. And that's basically my position still. I mean, if there comes along a decent uh, Labour opposition, I'll vote for it. And we'll talk about your uh, relationship and membership of various leadership of different parties uh, in that incredible time in the 1980s in particular. But what about social democracy in Britain? And why don't you think, or maybe you do agree, that no party has ever, apart from perhaps the SDP, certainly since then, sold itself as explicitly a, a social democratic party? Obviously, the Tories are never going to really do that. But Labour has preferred the term socialist. The Liberal Democrats have preferred the term liberal. Whether they're real liberals or not, I guess, is a moot point. But why don't you think social democracy has been, I guess, a bigger brand in Britain? Well, it's very hard to shift the Labour Party. And uh, quite bluntly, when we formed the STP, I knew I could never again return to the Labour Party. I wouldn't be accepted. And I knew that any real prospect of being prime minister was over. It couldn't possibly do that from a position of starting a new party. What I hoped we would do was so... Uh, destabilize the Labour Party and show them that people were simply not prepared to support a Labour Party unreformed, that we would have been able to then probably merge or at least for a while work together with them and then perhaps eventually merge. So I never believe that we were going to necessarily ourselves be the government of the country as CSDP. It would be wonderful if we could. But that wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to create a credible party on the left of centre in British politics. And frankly, it's never been done. And ever since the failure 
And our failure was internal. We got into bed with the liberals. The very thing that the posters told us never to do. They said, you're a new brand. Whatever you do, keep your newness and your feeling of this is a new party and new politics. And we merged uh, our identity at a critical stage. And it was a tragedy. Well, you know, it was a democratic decision. People decided that they chose Roy Jenkins rather than me. Of course, I wish myself that Shirley Williams had stood. Um, she was my candidate to be the leader of the STP. And for that very reason, that she was extremely popular with women, particularly, uh, particularly in the northeast of England. And it was where the disillusionment of the Labour Party at that stage, now it's more in Yorkshire, Middle England, but it's still, you know, Teesside. Um, we would have got a lot more Labour votes and we needed to get them in the 83 election. Of course, it was obvious after the Falklands War was over that, and with a success, which I strongly supported, I gave every possible support to Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative government on those sort of issues. I don't think party politics has any play at all. But in doing it, you knew perfectly well that if it was to be successful, she was a shoe in for winning. So the issue was smash the Labour Party. And um, I went to Grimsby during the election campaign in 83, and I made a speech comparing the Labour Party manifesto with the Communist Manifesto, and I came out on balance that so the Communist Manifesto was more moderate than the Labour Party. <laughs> <laughs> that may have been true in subsequent elections as well. Yeah, well, you, you have to go for the jugular, you know. There's no use denying politics is a blood sport. And if you opt out and you're going to challenge the party you've been with, you've got to take the gloves off, you've got to state it as it is, but not blanch at all in uh, putting uh, your finger on the jugular. She's about there. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking as a lapsed doctor. Uh, anyhow, I, I just think that it was a great mistake. If we had, I mean, we very nearly beat Labour Party in votes in the 83 election, but we had to win more seats. We had to beat them even more. And because we were with the Liberals, that's very hard to do because they win a lot of seats on the basis that uh, Labour can't win, therefore vote for us because we're a better alternative to the Tories. And it's perfectly understandable. I mean, I know a hell of a lot about the Liberal Party. I'm surrounded by them in the West Country in Devon and Cornwall. And for a long time, I was the only Labour MP west of Bristol. And uh, politics is a funny old business, you know. Uh, Plymouth, where I was born, is a Cromwellian city surrounded by royalists. For those who of your listeners who can't remember these terms, that's when we had a civil war and the bloody awful civil war, almost worse than the American one. And memories go on from civil wars and people and families split and everything goes up. So Plymouth has never had any time for the liberals. It switches between Labour and Conservative. I could never have won my seat as anything other than SDP or Labour but I couldn't win it as a liberal. And that's, I'm not a liberal anyhow. I, I have some serious questions about their capacity to stand up and tell the truth when it's unpopular. I think they have got their votes by creaming around, uh, sponsoring uh, popular causes and uh, uh, faffing off and not taking real tough decisions when your policies are not popular, but are correct. 
Well, taking those tough decisions, standing up and going for the jugular, as you put it, so many calculating political individuals who might have been in, you know, in a similar position to you, where you're a leading national figure, you're a political star, talked about as a future prime minister. Some people would say, well, if I was David Owen, the calculation would be stay in the Labour Party long enough until it hopefully comes to its senses, and then one day you can lead it. If you jump ship, you, you lose that ability to, to put your values at the heart of power in the UK. Look, I didn't go into politics to be prime minister. Uh, some people claim that they could stand on the number 10 as a schoolboy like Harold Wilson. I went into politics as a young doctor uh, admitting patients into hospital and the Royal Waterloo Hospital is closed now on the Waterloo Bridge. And the condition which was deciding whether we would bring them in was not uh, often their medical condition. Sometimes, of course, it was once I remember admitting a child with meningitis. It was barely, barely living. And within 24 hours with uh, penicillin into their cerebrospinal fluid, that kid was saved. So there are some wonderful things. A lot of medicine is propping up old wrecks and dealing with difficult questions. But children, you didn't dare send them back with a very bad chest infection if their housing conditions were dreadful. And this is why I was admitting them because their housing conditions, there wasn't a laboratory in the house. It had to go out in the garden. There was people, kids were sleeping four or five in a very small room. Now that was happening, you know, only 500 yards from the House of Commons. The Lambeth and that whole area was a very poor area. And I became more and more convinced that we had to do something about the social deprivation and the poverty in Britain. And that's why I became a doctor. Uh, but sorry, that's why I left medicine. That's why I became a politician. I mean, for two years, I tried to deny I was a politician. I went on working in my laboratory. By then I was doing research on the brain. And I, the House of Commons didn't only get started until the afternoon. So I would work in my laboratory, cross over Westminster Bridge and become an MP. And I couldn't, uh, you know, I, I wasn't really making the choice, but I mean, the choice already been made for me by the electorate. And then I became a minister for Navy. And when you go into the government, you have to uh, um, become full time. So I, I, I left medicine, but in a strange way, I've never left medicine. And every election in the early days, my wife used to see me looking at the back pages of the British Medical Journal for vacancies, because <laughs> in Plymouth, you never could tell, you know, it was a marginal seat for Labour. And it was until the SDP, but I had a very large majority. Actually, I represented Plymouth the longest in its history, 26 years. There's no other MP has ever been as not quite long as that. Uh, uh, so it, I also believe in politics coming from local people. I mean, of course, you can have a few MPs come from other places where, where they lived and brought up. But my father was a GP there, my mother was a dentist, my family was lived in Plymouth. They both were Welsh, but they come as young people there. And I absolutely identified with it. And in one time in the House of Commons, when you looked around, that carpetbagging is uh, an American expression, really. And they, they look on it with derision. You don't, even now in America, you don't really become a congressman or a senator very easily unless you can claim to come from the area. But we have all, all these people packed in. And if you look now at the present problem where Labour's been disowned 
in very sizable parts of the northeast of England and the center ground of England. The, who, the people, people they're rejecting uh, and the politics they're rejecting and people who are bounced in there by a Labour Party who've got no, no thing. I mean, Blair, Sedgefield, um, Mandelson, of course, this famous by-election has just taken place. Um, and a little bit of it's all right, but the new Labour Party, as they call themselves, began to ignore the importance of links in the constituency, links with the community, understanding why they, they were different and why they felt different. And so they're in a situation now where they're, they've got to make some very fundamental view ch changes and uh, attitudes to politics because they simply don't understand, many of them, why they're not getting the votes. And it, it's a long list, but it, it goes down to things like not respecting the community. Um, I mean, can you, can you imagine it in that particular uh, by-election, putting up a candidate who had been pro-EU? I mean, that is more or less saying, we don't give a damn for your views. I mean, in Plymouth, and it shakes people to realize it, but this is a constituency that voted 60, 40 to leave. It's not surprising in that sort of background, because I still relate to them. I see politics still in the eyes of how it really affects people in Bloor. And I go back, my sister lives near there, and my family and I, my mother and father are dead. But I could see, feel this resentment, this criticism, this worry, these anxieties about what was happening to Britain inside the European Union. And I gradually, from being a very committed supporter, saw the reasons why people were objecting, began to relate to them myself, and gradually moved to a situation where I came out, rather to my own surprise, and certainly to my family's surprise, uh, not my wife's, but um, and she didn't share my views though. So we had to learn to live tolerantly together in the family during the <laughs> referendum. <laughs> The David Owen of 1982-83 have voted to remain or leave? Oh, the David Owen of 1982-83 would definitely have voted to stay. So you have no changed, about that. changed and, and I campaigned for it uh, in 75 election. Yes, I think I, the first sign that there was a, going to be a change was when we came to 71 and Labour was in opposition and Ted Heath was putting the legislation through, Tony Benn came up with the idea of having a referendum and I supported it. I wrote to Roy Jenkins quite a detailed five-page paper why we should have it. Well, my friends all rejected it for quite good reasons, like if we didn't, if we had a referendum before we were in, people wouldn't vote for it. <laughs> you know, people are always slightly aware, frightened of the unforeseen in referendums. Anyhow, I lost it, so I, I was loyally friends with everybody, and I, it was not a dominant issue. But it is interesting that I was prepared to have a referendum. And then one of the points of real dispute with the Labour Party was when Tony Blair offered a referendum in the 2000 and uh, before the 2005 general election, he offered it in 2004, and then by 2006, he'd withdrawn it. Uh, that is just beyond the pale. I mean, it's just absolutely not serious politics. So I, I did come convinced that a referendum was the only way to solve the problem. 
when they tried to smuggle through a new constitution. You see, my problem with the European Union is I don't want to live in a single European state. And people keep forgetting, and I put some time to time, forgot it in my own political life, that that's what the founding fathers wanted. That's what they fight for at every possible stage. And I, once we joined, once they created the euro, and Britain didn't join, thank goodness, and all credit to John Major and some other people, Ed Bulls actually, in the Labour Party, totally against it. And it's always split a lot of people's views. Once we saw the euro, and then when it wasn't actually very successful, but that didn't matter. The euro currency is a paving way for a United States of Europe. And those who argue for it now, like President Macron in France, quite right. It will only work, actually, if it becomes a smaller grouping and runs its own currency and becomes effectively eight or ten countries. And then people either who have been associated can be linked very closely. But full membership should be for people who are prepared to carry the weight on their own foreign and domestic policy on the, their own federal bank and the bank has control over their economy. It doesn't work otherwise and it won't work. And until Europe becomes a federal state, it will move from crisis to crisis in my view. You occupy a very special place in British politics. You, I, I guess you kind of embody the centre ground of politics in a way that, that very few people can ever claim to, um, whether you call that social democracy or not. But I just want to get your view on, firstly, why you joined the Labour Party in the first place, uh, and then your view on where the Labour Party is now. Well, I didn't join the Labour Party when I was at Cambridge. I was broadly on the left, shocked by the Suez uh, crisis and Anthony Eden's policy, and a lot of things made me on the left. My friends were on the left. There was a very radical vicar at Great St Mary's, Cambridge, called Mervyn Stockwood, who come from Bristol and was himself on a Labour Party supporter. And he and a group of us became friends and investigated extrasensory perception and uh, lots of other things. So that was wow. formative. But I came up to uh, St Thomas's still unaligned. And then uh, Gateskill, who I admired, um, uh, was fighting for his political life in 59, and I joined the Labour Party. The, the old uh, Labour Party in uh, Lambeth, Southwark, you, you couldn't get into a place. It took me about three weeks to find the, the place open to join. And I joined, and then I, I think our, the clincher was listening to Gateskill saying on a radio broadcast, and I tried to get it, find it, ask the BBC to look for it at one stage, and he said, the trouble is there are too many armchair socialists. And I thought, that's exactly me. I claim I'm a socialist, but I'm not prepared to bloody well do any work for them. I don't put any money into them. And I just sit there and it's time to get off my ass and get on, get on and join the party. It's just what I do. But you, and you, I would still have, think, you, would, you would have identified as a socialist at that stage and not distinctly as a social democrat. Yes. Um, uh, Gate School was very clearly a social democrat by any standard. And... Um, an emotional, highly intelligent man. Um, but we didn't really feel the need to because we were broadly a United Labour Party. And you see, you've got to be careful about these terms on the left. 
I mean, Attlee, by any standards of today's politics, would be considered far left. And um, a lot of the people in the great Labour government of 1945 to 51 were, socialists was the only word to describe them. I, I didn't actually have problems with the word socialist, but at that stage in British politics, we had to think of a new name for we didn't want to, we were going to fight Labour, or at least we thought we were. What we didn't realise is that Roy Jenkins had joined us in order to join the Liberals. And of course, it would be much better if he had joined the Liberals and left uh, Shirley Williams, Bill Rogers and myself, who were comfortable with the word socialist. But in order to make a distinction, in Europe, the Social Democratic Party was a tradition and in the European Parliament. And... Helmut Schmidt, who was the foreign politician I most admire, and I dared, but he was a German chancellor. He was a quintessential social democrat. And broadly in European politics, it was to be solid on defense. You didn't uh, flap around. Um, when the Russians deployed SS-20 missiles, you agreed with the Americans bringing in cruise missiles to counter it. And Helmut Schmidt would fight that. And then also Mitterrand. Mitterrand became a social democrat and uh, he went to Germany and uh, argued in the Bundestag for uh, matching Russian missiles. So I'm, I'm, I suppose, tough on defence. I, I certainly feel uh, quite happily that it's necessary to spend money to keep an effective deterrent. And I supported all along. I spent two years as deputy minister. But I'm passionate about the National Health Service and I cannot forgive uh, Cameron for the Lansley reform, so-called 2012. But quite frankly, Blair started, it. and it's in 2002 legislation, 2006. Um, Labour started this thing of not a bad idea, actually, getting an internal market if it was only to compare costs, which is what I wanted to do. So doctors knew how much money they were spending because you can't get anybody really to focus on economies if they can spend as much money as they like and not know how much money they're spending. But when it became clear that the internal market started to be a really a development of the American care system, you know, I'm married to an American. I mean, she thinks we don't know how lucky we are in having a national health service. And we at one stage had our eldest child was extremely ill for nearly 11 years. And when you think of it, Great Ormond Street, we never paid a single penny. We could have afforded to, but everybody who was there, and now you see this great teaching hospital and children's hospital encouraged all the time to get more and more of its percentage income from private medicine. And it is there, right up there in the stars. And I have given money to them. I have all my books I gave to them. I am the first time in my life saying, I don't think I can give money to Great Ormond Street if it's going to spend and have so much private medicine associated with it. And I think that we, we forget what, you know, I'm, I'm, people say you're old fashioned. Well, some things aren't maybe old, but they're not old fashioned. <laughs> my, my father, when as a general practitioner said on the day the NHS was created in 1948, and he never had to ask a patient for money again, was a day of freedom. Just on defence, why do you think so many Labour people 
Now, every generation of Labour has this discussion about Trident, about defence, about Britain's role in the world. Why do so many Labour people struggle with the idea of having a, a not just a nuclear deterrent, but with any sort of you know, discussion about the armed forces in a positive way at all? Well, um, there's always been a pacifist streak in the Labour Party and a noble streak. And genuine pacifism tends to be broadly on the left. There's always been room for that in the Labour Party, but never in its governing councils. And when we did have a leader of the Labour Party, Lansbury, who came actually from Wapping, uh, uh, just up where I'm now in Limehouse, where I've been... Uh, still in Limehouse? I'm still in Limehouse ever since 1965. Where you were at the time of the declaration, or have you moved a little bit? I'm, I'm not exactly on that table in which, in the kitchen in which I'm on another table. Uh, where it was signed, it was typed by my wife. But <laughs> oh, wow. No, I mean, but to revert to Lansbury, this was in 1936. And uh, Ernie Bevin went to the rostrum of the Labour Party conference and said he should stop hawking his conscience around the conference and saw him off. So we had a Labour trade union movement who was very, very strong on defence and wouldn't allow any nonsense often stronger than the parliamentary party actually and that's um i've not even been against the trade union link uh except for when it started to have a controlling voice in the vote for who should be the leader of the party you can't have a parliamentary party that's not led by somebody who carries their support so imposing somebody from outside on a trade union block vote was ridiculous. And that was one of the reasons why we broke with the Labour Party. And, and I spoke at that conference. Um, and I remember saying to them, I think they didn't quite knew which way I was going to go. And I said to them, you know, we've just got rid of all the A and B roles in Rhodesia and now Zimbabwe. And you are fighting for this and you, you support me when I do this. And now you're doing the same, A and B roles, and A is the trade unions, B is the parliamentary party. Uh, but of course, when they came, then they started to bury me, that's fine, I have no objection to that. But uh, I was very, very glad we created the SDP, incidentally. And I think we did permanent good. I mean, it was the first party to really welcome women. Women were a very major part of it. Many of them were candidates, and women were given a position that they'd never been, and still haven't really, Strong, strongly enough in the Labour Party. Parliament now, um, the Labour Party is very well represented by women and also by different ethnic backgrounds. It's, it's very welcome. So the Labour Party can survive and can revive and can eventually win again. I haven't any much doubt, but they have to rethink what being Labour is. And they've got to realise that people are making a judgment now. You can't spend all this money on education and you've got a much more educated so if you're sitting in uh, up in Teesside or something like that and along comes Boris Johnson and starts making comments about what he's going to do about leveling up you listen then if you actually see him do it and you know for example his new um ports where you can oh free ports um, free ports it's a practical sign of you're doing something you're trying to offset I mean why why on earth, all these years, all these lorries pour down from Scotland and pour down from the north of England to join the M25 and then go out through Dover? It's utterly ridiculous. 
I'm glad to say it's stopping now, and they're starting to use the ports on the east side of the country. But how any government could have allowed that to be done, and all it then allowed uh, Macron or French people to completely block us, we, we'd all geared ourselves to go out through this route. It's absolutely absurd. So we, we're getting big changes to coming in Brexit. I'm a total supporter, and I will. I now consider myself basically a few years remaining to make a success of Brexit. So I view every policy, not whether it comes from the Tories or Labour or Liberal or anybody you like to name. Does it make sense as part of the radical changes that we have to make in order to become more competitive worldwide and to govern ourselves? And therefore, I'm, uh, I'm still... I'm not fighting the battle, the battle is over. But I mean, we had three bloody years in which these uh, MPs who had voted for it actually spent their whole time trying to block it. I mean, it's an absolutely disastrous parliament. And uh, they didn't agree about anything else. It was a, a frightful bargains, dreadful speaker uh, who completely corrupted the rules of parliament. The parliament doesn't have it written into law, but. The basic thing was that governments only can make laws. And if they can't make laws, you get them rid of them. And we were having laws going to be made uh, against a referendum result by a gaggle of MPs who the only thing they could agree on was being in love with the European Union. It was an absolute scandal. That parliament produced something, though. It produced a minor split in the Labour Party and a minor split in the Conservative Party, which created the Independent Group for Change, which then became Change UK. The obvious parallel is, is with the SDP. Now, I, I know that the context is different, that the effect was different, that the characters involved were different, that Change UK wasn't as big a deal as the SDP. But when you saw them doing that, those, those MPs that broke away from the Labour Party, for, for a number of reasons, particularly the Labour ones, did you feel a sense of history repeating? Did you, were you willing them on or did you think, oh, no, you're, you're, doing, it, you're, doing, it, you're doing it wrong? No, no, no. I, I approve of anybody who in Parliament stands up for what they believe in, uh, fights for it and takes the knocks that come from either the whip's office disagreeing or your electors disagreeing. So, I, I, of course, I have a fellow feeling for them. What I didn't so much appreciate is when they hadn't got um, a, enough respect for the referendum. So those were the ones who went up opposite to what I wanted, wanted to stay in the EU. I had no objection to that. I thought they were entitled to fight for their view of how we could handle it best outside the European Union. And many of them actually solutions which were take it a bit more slowly and play with some European organizations like the European Economic Area. I wanted to, but that wasn't the way this was going to work out. It was going to end up with a bloody struggle and there were no, no room for halfway houses. And by the end, I'd have accepted coming out even without an agreement. And I think that it just made life more difficult. So I don't think I objected to people following their conscience or anything like that. What I objected to was the, I mean, this second referendum. It was sailing under a false colours. They were basically wanting to stop the referendum result. 
sounded reasonable. They're paying all sorts of money and there were all sorts of strange people linked up with them. But in my view, it was a totally dishonest thing for a member of parliament who had voted for the legislation. They voted 450 or something, maybe more, 500. I mean, somebody like Ken Clark, who'd always opposed it and voted against it, you couldn't deny him his rights. He was doing what he had every right to do. His constituency knew his views. But these people were just playing games. And, you know, it's not often recognised, but the man who stopped it was uh, Corbyn, to some extent the Liberal leader, who suddenly gave Boris Johnson what he needed, which was the two-thirds majority. But that, I had always supported two-thirds majority to get rid if it was tied to proportional representation. But this is, was not tied to proportional representation. And if you don't have proportional representation, then a, a member of parliament who is also prime minister must have the right to go to the queen and ask for an election. It's a crucial leverage with his own dissidents in his own party. You, have, you have, must have it. And so I imagine Boris will fairly soon restore the position that uh, uh, Prime Minister Harold Wilson said, I have to be there for six months and then you have a right to go to the Queen and have a dissolution. You need it if you're not going to change the voting system. Now, I'd like to change the voting system, but we had a referendum on this only under the Liberal uh, Conservative. I mean, I actually think Cameron and Clegg were pretty identical, Conservatives. Uh, and... Uh, men of neither consequence nor of any real application. So cocky and pretty bad government, actually, particularly in retrospect. Just on the uh, the independent group and them leaving, and I know we can't take Brexit fully out of this, but I'm obviously trying to draw a parallel between the, the journey that you went on and, and some of your fellow travellers went on and, and the others didn't, because the independent group leave the Labour Party, uh, then some of them end up in the Lib Dems, Luciana Berger and, and Chukaramuna. And of course, with the SDP, some of you left the Labour Party, you form a new party, and then you end up in the Lib Dems. I mean, I realised that it was a different scale. And of course, the Lib Dems didn't really exist. They were the Liberals, and then after the Alliance, they became the Liberal Democrats. But it must have been quite interesting for you to watch other people make that journey again many years later. I don't think it was the same, uh, because... Ours was a fundamental disagreement with a political party of which we were a member. Theirs was an area of disagreement on an issue of Europe, which is a big issue, and I understand it. I never really felt it was like our struggle. Our struggle wasn't successful because we didn't have it clean and definite enough. And, um, you know, I think... So I, symp I sympathise with anybody who takes a political career in their hands and risks all by uh, dissenting from the main party which they're a member of on an issue of policy. I will always do that. But I also am a realist. Politics needs collective action and collective action needs discipline. And therefore, when people break repeatedly with that party, they have to have the threat of having the whip taken away from them. So I'm fairly grown up about my politics. And um, I, I think that it, we had one aim and object, which was to get the Labour Party into a different position. Now, people said that it would become a different position by the time uh, 
John Smith as chairman of a leader of the party. Maybe if John Smith had survived, then I would have gone back into the Labour Party. We wouldn't have had Tony Blair. We wouldn't have had the Iraq War. There were many different ifs of history. I think that was a turning point when John Smith became the leader of the Labour Party. And they'd already made substantive changes. But um, Kinnock was a crazy choice uh, because he was had been along, identified with all this stuff and nonsense. And so he had to change visibly in front of the electorate. So the electorate always thought of Kinnock as somebody who, who had changed his mind because it's the only way to get into power. And that's not very good. I'm sure he changed his mind, I hope, intellectually, because some of his policies were totally flawed. But I mean, people claim that he got, he didn't reform the Labour Party and nor did Blair. I mean, Blair led the Labour Party as if it was a mixture between a sort of um, Cameron Tory party and uh, uh, David Steele Liberal Party. I mean, I don't, I, I mean, he always talks about it at various stages in his career. It was almost accidental that he joined the Labour Party. Didn't stop him fighting a by-election totally against the SDP on every single policy, but there we are. And that's his affair. He seems to want to come back to politics. I think he wants some prime minister again, shafting his own leader, poor El Starmer. There we are. Uh, last thing he needed was Blair to open up in him that vitriolic way. But that's Lib Party and that's politics, I suppose. Give Starmer a chance. It's, it's early days yet, and let's see how he does. And he's got some very able people there. And um, I, I think. But Labour has to know where it is. That's the real issue. And, you know, they have to decide what's their policy on uh, Scottish devolution, as they now call it, Scottish government and separation. And you've got to have a view on those things. And um... What's your gut telling you about Starmer? Do you, do you identify with him? Obviously, as you say, you donated to David Miliband. Would you... Would you donate money to, to Starmer or to the Labour Party under his leadership? No, I wouldn't, um, because I told you my priority is to get Brexit done. And Starmer was absolutely uh, knee-deep in the whole of the idea of the uh, second referendum and trying to pretend that what it is and what it's not. But I think he is a genuine European I think Starmer shows that politics is actually a rum old business and it's, it requires a lot of skills. He is, was a good, he's ran a good department as a director of public prosecutions. He's obviously an able man and an able lawyer. He hasn't learnt enough because he hasn't even been in parliament long enough. So he's still on a learning curve about politics. And I think you'll find he will learn. I don't think he'll try and get rid of Angela this side of an election. From the point. <laughs> and she's a tough lady and a very remarkable and interesting woman. And uh, the, the whole thing was madness. Um, so that, that was political inexperience more than anything else. Now, that's the pretest of a leader. Does he learn from it? Gateskill made some early mistakes in his policies and then he learned from them. And in a way, he's a bit like Gateskill. There's a, a basic integrity and intellectual strength but he has got to learn about politics and there's enough time so i think I, if i were them i would rally behind him uh tell blair to go off to 
various stands so you can go and make money from and just ignore him and tell Mr. Mandelson, I think you've had your say now. And uh, who's that other chap who spends his whole time on BBC? Um, the sort of psych, I forget his name. He's not been a member of Parliament. Um, anyhow, it doesn't matter. Well, I've, got uh, Peter Mandelson, I've, I've got Mandelson, Peter Mandelson back on the show in a couple of weeks, so I'll, well, I'll pass on your regards. Well, I, 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 I like Peter, and I, he's very, very able. He, he's the grandson of Herbert Morrison, one of the most successful party figures in the Red Party, because he knew how to organise. And that is Peter Mandelson's strength, is he, he believes and knows that elections are not won just on speeches, they're won by organisation and actually a perception of unity. But he thinks the Labour government was a great success. Of course, if you've been in it, you do. And I suppose if I'd been in touch with it, I would see it. I see it as a disastrous government. It takes you to war on the basis of a lie and then ends up with a whole raft of policies which starts dismantling the National Health Service. So as far as I'm concerned, that wasn't the Labour government at all. And I still think, I'm still waiting to hear a Labour health spokesman really take the government on night after night, day after day on various propositions on health. We don't yet know what Boris is going to do on health. If he's wise, he'd really revert back to the 1948 Health Act under Naren Bevan. You see, my father was a Welsh, my mother was Welsh, my grandfather was a blind clergyman and a, a, a prebendary of uh, Landaff Cathedral. And I went to a meeting when I was 11 in Devonport Guildhall, and my grandfather was there rooting for Anara Bevan, who was speaking with Michael Fogg. He wanted um, Bevan to be Prime Minister. I think he would have been a great Prime Minister myself. And he was left. It doesn't matter coming from the left so much. It matters where you are, and you may well end up more moderate under the pressures of time. And that's the path of May. I, I refuse to end up as a Tory. I've never voted Tory in my life. I'll never vote Tory. I'll never leave the basic uh, tenets of socialism. You were, you were courted, or, or they certainly considered courting you. It's, it's rumoured that John Major tried to bring you into his cabinet or at least considered it did he ever make a proper approach well margaret thatcher actually right in front of debbie in number 10 said it's time your husband came and joined you debbie said he's standing beside you why don't you talk to him <laughs> so i think she started alan clark who was a late tory mp great fun and, and a rather ribald character and, and he, he had this idea that I should join the Tories. I kept on telling him, I never will. And I actually, as a practicing public politician, had to do what you're told you not ever say. I said, I would never join the Tories. Because even some of my critics inside the SDP Liberal Alliance were saying that I was a sort of closet Tory. Uh, it's all bullshit. Um, I fought for the health service even in the poor old House of Lords, which of course he used this space and ought to be abolished. And we, we've got, really got to get around, stop this nonsense of people legislating who are not elected. But I use it as a forum and a place to oppose the issue in politics is closest to my heart. And I know I shouldn't really both 
say it should be abolished and work in, but it has no power. That's why it's so frustrating. But the House of Commons would have to watch very carefully what's happening in the NHS now. And there are some forces. I mean, Sir Simon Stevens has simply introduced the Lansbury reforms, but you find people on the left and in the Guardian thinking he's done a great job. I mean, I don't know which planet they're on. Planet Guardian is its own world, I think, sometimes. Yes. Well, I still buy it, now, of course, because it's still a good newspaper in lots of ways. And anyhow, it's broadly right on a lot of poverty issues and things like that. Um, no, I mean, I think one of the reasons of British politics, I find myself, I'm reading five newspapers a day. It's absolutely ridiculous. But unless you do, you don't seem to get the coverage from them. Uh, so uh, maybe that's because we've all been locked up and there's not much else to do other than write a book. I've just written a book, uh, which is good fun. It kept me off of that. And when's that out? Hopefully in October. It's the uh, history of uh, British-Russian relations. Starts in 1820 with the Battle of Navarino. I'm off to Greece. Uh, I have a house and a boat there. I have I have to go and sort out the house, which has been sold. And um, it was a famous battle. We absolutely smashed the Ottoman Empire. And it was Russia, France, and Britain. Admiral Codrington, and no sooner had he beaten the Ottoman Empire, sh sunk 60 of its ships, he was more or less pushed out of the Navy. And he was. it was called the untoward event. And they wouldn't even pay for the people who's been killed or injured and the Admiralty refused to pay. So he, he, he didn't resign. In those days, you could stand as an MP. He went and stood as an MP. What constituency? Devonport. And he told the Devonport constituents, I'm only going to stay for a year. If you elect me, I'm going to put legislation through which will pay for the widows and pay for the people who are injured in the Battle of Navarino. It's exactly what they did. They voted him in, passed the legislation, he left, and the admiralty had to make him uh, main admiral in Portsmouth. <laughs> it's well, the a great story, but that's, that's not the whole book about it. It, goes, it ends up with Mr. Putin holding a candle in a church in Moscow uh, en route to becoming the next Tsar of Russia. Well, this is it. I mean, you know, people in, in modern... Uh, our modern relationship with Russia is, is is very difficult indeed, particularly after Litvinenko and Salisbury, and uh, yeah. potentially very very hard uh, in our democracy online. And um, I wanted to ask you actually, when you mentioned Angela Rayner, it made me think of how what, what big part of politics handling big relationships is. And you alluded earlier to the Gang of Three and then the Gang of Four. The Gang of Three originally was you, Shirley Williams and Bill Rogers. It then becomes the Gang of Four, which includes Roy Jenkins. Um, is it fair to say your relationship with Roy Jenkins uh, could be difficult at times? Oh, yeah. I mean, it totally changed. We, I, was, I learned a huge amount from him. I was a great admirer of him. I think he was a very remarkable reforming uh, Home Secretary and... He helped greatly private members' legislation get through homosexual law reform, divorce law reform. Um, it was a very, very radical time. And then he became a good Chancellor of the Exchequer, at least certainly for the crisis years. Whether he'd been so good and later, I don't know. And um, we, were, we were friends. And then gradually I 
felt that Europe was so strongly an issue with him and it was becoming less important for me and also not even I was totally supportive of it. Um, so we began to be a bit distant, but then it became obvious when he was president of the commission that he was becoming identifiable liberal and he, he should have come and been, David Seale would have stood down for him. David was always generous in that way. And actually my personal relationship was good with David Seale. I he said, you look after the Liberal Party, and I'll look after the SDP. But Roy Jenkins and I ended up with uh, no friendship at all. Sad. It is, particularly when you have these big era defining relationships that the public finds so inspiring, you know, even now, um, yourself, Shirley Ro uh, Williams, Bill Rogers and uh, Roy Jenkins are such totemic political figures. And it is, there is a sense of sadness that you, you, you're in these hugely creative, mutually uh, kind of supporting relationships. And yet, you know, they can break down as we know with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and with other relationships at the heart of government. When they break down, they break down in quite a spectacular way. I mean, in, in later years, was there ever an attempt to reach out and, and rebuild? Um, not really. Um, I think this issue of Europe is a very deep one. You know, it is about whether or not you think you can be a country with other countries <laughs> or whether you can have to be by yourself as a country. It goes to the root of the word sovereignty, it goes to the root of how much measure of independence, how much measure of cooperation and internationalism. It, it all mixed up, you know, I, I still have no problem. I'm a European, a European is a geographical location. I'm in Europe. Am I friendly with Europe? Yes. And they've chosen to go a different way. We are a different country, and you're seeing this now. I mean, Brexit, fortunately, has been served up with many good things that has just come by chance. I mean, we, we have a strong naval tradition. It is understandable that we've now got an aircraft carrier, which had, frankly, there was no, no real role for it. No, you don't put an aircraft carrier into the Bering Sea, and it's you too vulnerable, and more or less, in, in anywhere in Europe. But it's uh, it, it's based in Oman. It will do a good role in India and in improving. We're seeing better relations with India than we've ever seen before, and now we're restoring relations with Australia and New Zealand. And we're seeing ourselves linking up, uh, particularly after what was done to Hong Kong, in a grouping of nations that are going to have to call time on the uh, Chinese government and particularly President Xi. It's not going to be easy. And so suddenly Brexit makes sense. You being worldwide could be argued when you had China apparently being a friend and working well. Um, it, 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 you could make a case for it. But, I mean, the day I was made foreign secretary, I talked about blue water diplomacy. And I've always believed that we should play a role worldwide. And now we are going to play a role worldwide. We mustn't exaggerate it. We're still not that. But the, one of the best decisions that's come with Brexit is a decision to increase the defence budget. You can't deal with Russia expanding its military. And Putin has spent a lot of money on improving Russian military and expect America to go on paying the bills. European won't play. We will pay. And so we're paying and we've got a four-year budget 
and we must use NATO as our basic foreign policy. We don't need to be involved in the European foreign policy with 30 other countries in the room. It's completely impossible. I saw that in the Balkans. I worked with Europe. I was a Europe representative in the Balkans. They loyally supported me, but it was a Europe of nine, a Europe of 12, a Europe of 15. It's now a Europe of 30 and probably going to 32, 33. Very difficult unless you become much more unified and federal, really. And I think that's, as I said earlier, that's the way they should go. And that makes sense for them. We shouldn't be disparaging about it. I mean, I had a French politician called Michel Rocard, who is a um, prime minister of uh, France. He and Mitterrand are really serious enemies, <laughs> although in the same part of the French Socialists. And he was always a federalist, and I was always against federalism. And we've known each other since, sadly, he died a few years back now, great loss. But I think we can have an open disagreement on this issue and still work quite friendlyly in a way. They're also protectionists. It is wiser for us to be, have the markets of the world and to compete in the markets of the world and not be behind a protectionist war. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You mentioned the Balkans there. You testified in the trial of Slobodan Milosevic, which, I, you know, I know you've uh, been on a lot of big stages, involved in a lot of big things. You're Foreign Secretary at 38. That must have been a surreal arena to be inside. Yes, it was. And um, I went into the courtroom. I spent two days there. They allowed my assistant, who'd been with me all this time, to come in with files, to, you know, right in a big filing cabinet, because I refused to be a witness for the prosecution. I said, I've been an independent figure trying to, on behalf of the EU, working with the UN, trying to get peace. If I now suddenly turn out as a prosecuting witness, they will think that, you know, it's totally unreal. So it meant I could be tested and questioned by him on any policy across the board. So I was a witness of the court, which was much better procedure. And as I went into the court, the Milosevic was standing there, you know, and I'd seen him endless for two and a half years. I, I, I was not in this country very much at the time. I, how my family put up with I don't know. And I was traveling all the time and seeing Milosevic because he was a crucial element trying to bring him together, Sipbekovic and Tuchman and all these people. And I was just about to go forward and shake his hand. And then my secretary, I thought, was with me and he pulled my coat back in. And there was a wall of glass and behind that were all these people, many of them the relatives of people who had lost people and you couldn't see them. So it seemed so intimate, the corpus. And it would have been hugely misconstrued if I'd shaken his hand. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he, he could have settled. He had the capacity to settle, and he should have settled, and he wouldn't have ended up in court. Uh, but he, 
was very cocky and uh, interesting figure. And uh, I don't believe myself he was ever going to go to prison. He died in prison just before he was sentenced. Well, you, I leave that to your imagination. Russia said they'd look after his family and his wife went off and lived in Russia, died just recently. But that man was never going to go to prison. Why not? He was a Serb. He was the king of the Serbs. He was, they don't, uh, they don't do that sort of thing. Uh, I know, of course, he, people say he had a heart attack. Well, why did he have a heart attack? I don't know, but all I'm telling you is he had no intention of serving prison. And in the, that court procedure, they start searching you and stopping you having anything around that you could take your life. Just before that, he was living in a really rather palatial circumstances in prison as a prisoner under charge. Anyhow, who knows? But he was um, a villain, but nowhere near as bad as General Mladic, who was largely responsible for Srebrenica. But you see, you live with so many different things. I mean, Cyrus Vance, who was American Secretary of State, and I begged the UN Security Council not to go ahead with this policy of five safe areas. The military told them they needed 31,000 troops to do it. And they only ended up with 6,000. We told them, you are creating a situation where there will be a killing, a terrible tragedy. And they took no notice at all and went on. And then Srebrenica happened and the genocide. Of course, it was the event that mobilized the world that made the United States come into the real world and be ready to allow NATO to use force. But uh, Clinton, for the first two years, two and a half years, absolutely, totally against using force. And Major and Mitterrand both said, if the Americans won't come in, we won't entertain this fight. And it showed Europe's lack of strength in a way. Uh, but they were right. They, uh, there was no, we had got geared to fighting through NATO. And fighting Britain and France was not going to work. And then, of course, when Britain and France fought in Libya, when uh, uh, Cameron and... Um, uh, Sarkozy. Sarkozy, that's right. Yeah, two cocky characters wafted into Libya and bombed a few drops and everything like that. You can't fight a battle all from the air. We should have learned that in Kosovo. You have to put troops on the ground if you're going to have success. We were escaped humiliation after 87 days of bombing in Kosovo by Yeltsin giving um, Clinton a favor. Clinton handled Yeltsin extremely well. He said it was because his um, stepfather was a drunk, so he got used to handling him. Drunk or sober, Yeltsin was a great character. <laughs> it was a wonderful time, actually, to be in foreign policy community, the Yeltsin government chaotic, but the foreign minister was one of the best colleagues we had working for us. So if people keep on forgetting, we've had some, in recent history, very good relations with Russia, where they're very bad at the moment, and you're quite right to mention Salisbury, and not just the threat to the Russian spy, who after all was let free on an exchange, but they actually did end up killing a woman, a citizen, a completely innocent citizen, by having this uh, poison, uh, Novichok. And now it'd be used against one of their own. 
Navalny. Yes. So I, dealing with Russia is going to be very difficult, but you have to do. And the book is really about that fact that, uh, and nobody more, more strongly throughout his whole life, although he hated the Bolsheviks, was Churchill, a supreme, uh, rational, realpolitik man, who as soon as Germany attacked Stalin, Stalin was a friend. <laughs> Not easy, but he handled that brilliantly. We have to, you have to talk to people who have poisons like that and massive nuclear arms. There'll be a mistake made about it. Nuclear weapons, I really believe you've got to try to get rid of them. They are very dangerous. We've already had about 11 incidents which could have created a nuclear exchange worldwide. And we carry on with them. And it's a great failure. I tried very hard for nuclear disarmament, both when I was foreign secretary before and then since. And we've made no progress at all. More countries are now... Sorry? There, there was a moment of hope, though, wasn't there, with Bush and Putin when they decommissioned some of their nuclear warheads, and it felt at that point perhaps the world was moving in the right direction. Yes, um, there was. I mean, even before that, the extraordinary meeting of Reagan and Gorbachev. Yes. And then uh, this extraordinary meeting in Reykjavik when, for the first time, the Russians charted a path towards no nuclear weapons at all. Um, Margaret Thatcher was totally against it. You know, this rather trite phrase, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, but you have to learn how to. And that was an extraordinary breakthrough. And they wouldn't give Reagan enough ground on his um, Star Wars. Reagan was an interesting figure. Um, he came through London when he was formerly a governor of New York and asked to see the prime minister and Callahan didn't see him. And he said, oh, go and see the foreign secretary. So he came into my room, we had a strange conversation and he was obviously thinking, what do I say to this youngster? <laughs> uh, and uh, he asked me about Africa and I want to talk to him about NATO. And he ended up the meeting with a wonderful crack. He said, uh, well, uh, Dr. Owen, uh, I've enjoyed this meeting. We've had a very interesting exchange of ideas. I tell you one thing, I won't be making any more speeches on Africa. <laughs> <laughs> and thereafter, if I wanted to see him when he was in the White House, he would say, break all protocol. And he'd say, he saw me when nobody else was seeing me. And I, there I was, leader of the SDP, going and meeting him in the White House. Fantastic. So he's a funny character, but he was simple, you see. He just thought, if you have nuclear weapons, you can't get rid of them. You have to have a defense against them. Star Wars was not as crazy as people thought. And it's, we're already getting pretty clear, near to being able to block missiles coming in. And it, it's a simple way of it. But it was different and it was always sold in the wrong way because, but you know, you why do you defend? You you put up your fist to stop yourself being hit. And that's what he was, Star Wars was not foolish. You won't ever be sure that they haven't have them. You've got to be sure you've got a defense. And therefore you try and knock them out in space. And uh, I used to be against Star Wars, but the, once I talked to Reagan actually in the White House, and just before Reykjavik, about three months, four months, I think Reykjavik was a terrible, terrible tragedy because you had a very brilliant head of the Russian army at that stage who wanted to deal. And, uh, but Gorbachev was getting, uh, was losing his power by then. 
and uh, he had to take the traditional anti-Star Wars view. It's a great, great shame. But it's got to start again. Somebody will have to do it. Maybe it will be Biden. Biden has offered to speak to um, Putin about Ukraine, and he should do. And we've been faffing around about Ukraine. What have they been doing, these mince talks? Where was um, Hague? Where was uh, um, Cameron when uh, Ukraine was... It was just been left to the French and the Germans. And they've been totally inadequate, the mince talks. So you have to talk. That's what the book is about. Uh, being foreign secretary is one of your huge personal achievements, one of the things that you're really known for. You were foreign secretary at 38. I mean, I'm 38 now. The thought of being foreign secretary at this age is absolutely petrifying. I mean, I know you were in a position to be foreign secretary at 38, but were you daunted when appointed? Well, I had been the deputy and I had for six months been what we now call minister or used to call minister for Europe. So I, there was one big area of their work, which I understood very well, but I had uh, never been to Africa. And my whole issue is dominated by not only uh, Rhodesia as now Zimbabwe, but Namibia and now um, or then Northwest Africa and South Africa itself. So I had to spend a lot of time in the air and traveling. It was, it was tricky, um, but because uh, my son was ill, but um, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I fought the fight and uh, I, it was, a, you see, Jimmy Carter is a much more effective president than many people have given him credit for. I mean, he was seen off because the, the Iranian hostages, and that was his tragedy. But it was a very active time of human rights. And if your policy of human rights just Britain alone, that's nobody's going to take any notice. If you're working very closely with Carter himself and Vance, of foreign secretary, started our very long continued friendship. And um, it was an exciting time. I mean, uh, human rights, we, we got the Russians on the move, things were happening, and um, the Helsinki final act had taken place. I, I met Brezhnev, for instance, up in, wow. uh, in, uh, in Moscow, and we, uh, we hadn't had our first foreign secretary to visit Russia for six years, because um, Alec Douglas Hume had kicked out 90 spies. I think quite rightly, I may say, but nobody knew what we were going to go into. We, nobody knew what reception. And when I walked down the gangway, Grumiko was at the bottom. And Grumiko was old enough to be my, well, certainly my uncle. And um, he'd been the oldest foreign secretary for ages. We go into Moscow together. He actually speaks good English, but he doesn't let on in public. And we pass a great big um, iron crosses, uh, girders. And this marked the closest point where German tanks came in 1941 to Moscow, right in the outskirts of Moscow. And he explained to me, I'd not seen it before, and I'd missed it when I come in uh, other times. And he said, this is why you're always annoyed with me for not moving closer on mutual balance force reduction negotiations with him. I was quite true. I, he says, this makes me very cautious. I didn't say it, but it, if you had been in my position, you'd have felt cautious. And <laughs> it, did, it, did, it did help me to understand it. We do occasionally in negotiations 
do best when you try and put yourself in the, their position, think through their position, and think, what would I be doing if I was in their position? And there's no doubt one of the problems we're in is this NATO expansion right up to the borders of Russia, which we promised Bush senior, uh, Major um, Mitron, if not Cole himself, I think Cole, but also Gensho's foreign minister. But we all promised both uh, Gorbachev, Yeltsin, and uh, um, even Putin in the early days that we wouldn't do this. We've got to stop it. We must not let Ukraine come into NATO or Georgia come into NATO. We've got to reach an agreement on that. It's too destabilizing. You know, Russia's been invaded by Napoleon and by Hitler. And there was a long way to Moscow. And that was one of the reasons. Now, from a NATO boundary, it's not a long way to Moscow. 76 miles in one place. If you're thinking of how they see us, You've got to take that into account. Mm. Anyhow, we must talk. Uh, Africa is something you've mentioned a couple of times, and Zimbabwe, as it was known, then Rhodesia. You met Robert Mugabe uh, multiple times uh, in, in, your, in your book, uh, um, the first one, Time to Declare. Um, you say that uh, Mugabe was, was, you felt that like you were dealing with an honest man and that feeling never left you. Uh, do you think he changed as an individual? Did you have any hints that he was a kind of despot to come? Well, that book wasn't true, you see, in a way. It was written at a time when it was not possible, or I felt it was not possible, to say the truth about Mugabe. I did, I did, I did like Mugabe. And I fundamentally, actually, funnily enough, don't think he ever lied to me. But there was something very strange about him. And one of them was this... Up front, everybody else was saying, oh, well, we, we don't believe in one party, one, you know, party, one single party rule and all that sort of thing. And Joshua Nakomo and everything like that. Now, Joshua Nakomo was a rogue, but he was a sort of rogue. You knew what to do with him. Mugabe was very difficult to deal with. One day I couldn't see him as I was seeing people who had, uh, were in prison and I had to get them out and meet in the so-called embassy. I couldn't therefore go out to a mission hospital, which uh, I was due to go, and my wife went. And the uh, Father Dove was the head of the mission hospital, took her to one side into his room, and he said, I'm very sad your husband couldn't come because there was one thing I wanted to tell him, but I know you'll tell him. Robert Mugabe is a practicing Catholic and takes mass every Sunday. This is a man who claimed to be a Maoist and was dealing with all this. Anyhow, we came, we all met together later that night and Debbie came back from the thing and we were all having a drink and a pun. And she recounted this story and everybody laughed. Well, I, because I, she was my wife and I love her. So I didn't obviously laugh, but I must say, I didn't take much thing. But something in me said, in order to find me, well, let's put MI5 onto, MI6 onto this. And so we did. And MI6 tracked him in Maputo, changed his car twice, and was going to... Uh, now, from that moment on, I changed about Mugabe, not because I didn't see it, but you realise he was deeply uh, compromised, that he was living as... Who knew which was the real Mugabe? Practising Catholic in private and a practising Maoist communist in the other one. 
There was only one other person like that in power at that time. And that was a chap called Paul Pot. You're too young to know about him. Well, he I, know, emptied, I know of him, yeah. yeah. Well, ever since that moment, I was very suspicious of Mugabe. And um, I did actually try and get him removed in a, 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 a pooch um, with, but it had to be an African pooch. Couldn't be me, but I set it up. And uh, Smith met with Joshua Nakomo and uh, with the Nigerians uh, and uh, uh, the Zambians, uh, Kenneth Conda was the host. And the idea was that he would leave Mugabe, not ditch the so-called alliance, but go back next morning. It was met, met at midnight in Lusaka. Next morning he would go in and he would be saluted at the base and he would be the prime minister. Uh, it never, it never worked. Largely, I think, because Smith saw the danger and urged involvement of Mugabe, which of course killed the whole bloody thing. <laughs> Anyhow, that was a very secret meeting for a long time, and uh, we we didn't really talk about it. Um, Americans were told about it. We didn't. Advance knew about it, but it didn't work. And so you, you had to live with Mugabe. But the tragedy was the genocide in 82, within two years of being prime minister, that streak within him was shown. He was also training up the North Koreans to form this sixth brigade, uh, even before he became won the election. And what, did you have uh, any formal really, lines of communication with him? Were you able to get messages to him and say, Robert, look, don't go down yes, this route? You, you could talk with him and as I say, he, he wouldn't lie, and uh, it was quite engaging and intellectual, and, but he was deeply conflicted. And people who are deeply conflicted are not to be trusted because they have got... I write a lot now about hubris and about changes in the um, manner of people when they take power, how power, mm. all power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And, the way hubris gathers them, and we've seen it too now amongst quite a few of our prime ministers, unfortunately. And we need to watch against this um, that power can close you off from humor and being pulled down. House of Commons, of course, is quite good, doesn't usually allow it. I think it's House of Commons would be much better now when it starts coming back and subjecting Boris to the full scrutiny of House of Commons. It's through nobody's fault, but that isn't quite the same the way it's functioning under um, COVID. As well as the House of Commons, in your era, we saw the birth of Spitting Image, and, and your puppet was one of the most prominent, one of the most recognisable. Um, how did you feel about it? Did you take it as a compliment? Were you offended? Did your opinion change over time? David Steele in my pocket, you mean? <laughs> well, it, it was it was not, firstly, it was not uh, true, um, but it was very embarrassing for him. And I think if it had been, I'd been in his shoes, I wouldn't have handled it with anywhere near as much grace or generosity. It was difficult for him because mm -hmm. it was absurd. And it was, it was, of course, done. It was a savage it's cartoon. And that's what a lot of the success of uh, most of us took the view, I think, better to appear on. Uh, spinning image than not. So yes, you didn't kind get of Oscar Wilde because everybody was watching it. 
and it was necessary to laugh about it and joke about it. It was a very penetrating, I mean, it was a continuous cartoon. I mean, cartoons are a huge part of politics. That's why you've got to keep your sense of humor and you've got to keep a bit more relaxed, you know. It's, uh, you, you're gonna have ups and downs in politics. You've got to somehow level them out. Very difficult to do. And always remember that luck. Uh, we very rarely have had the prime ministers we deserve. So you shouldn't get terribly upset if you are not going to be prime minister. Uh, most of the people who've got there have actually got there largely through luck. I mean, we wouldn't have been, uh, Blair would not have the career he did if John Smith had lived. He would have been a prominent member of the Labour Party and would have been rather, probably a rather successful minister, but he wouldn't have been prime minister. And um, a lot of luck. Uh, but cartoons, why do we have cartoons? Why do we have spitting image? Because we want to keep these guys down and keep them realistic and punch. And you look back at old pictures of books of punch, they're savage cartoons. I mean, we would be very upset if they did these sort of things to us. So I think you just, um, as you found out before I came out, look, Matt cartoon, I look at it every day and every day he's got a, way of doing it. So the pubs are opening, what's he have? Two people, chap comes in, he says to the barman, I'll have my usual, whatever that was. <laughs> <laughs> but were you able it's, to take it? Today's news. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, I think a lot of politicians in the end grew to love their spitting image puppets, didn't they? I mean, I think Michael Portillo, did he buy his? Maybe yeah. he didn't. I think some people actually then realized it was currency. I mean, did you ever keep, I know sometimes uh, politicians actually buy the cartoon strips when they're satirized, their caricatures. Did you keep any of yours? I've kept a few cartoons, and, um, but I don't have them up on my walls. And I, um, I've got one of the spitting images, it's of Roy Jenkins, and it hasn't got any pins in it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so much of, we, we mentioned this earlier, but so much of politics is, like you say, luck and timing and circumstance. A little bit of judgment helps. But when you're foreign secretary in your 30s, holding one of the great four officers of state, being touted as a future prime minister, it would have been very hard in your position not to think, actually, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that in the next five to 10 years, you might be crossing the threshold of number 10 as it's incumbent. I mean, it's, you obviously would have liked yes. to have been prime minister. Yes, I did. I did, obviously. I did. But I can remember a moment when I consciously took a decision that would make it less likely I'd be Prime Minister. So two or three times. Obviously, one was forming the, helping to form the SDP. But um, we were trying to get a new constitution. That was the difference of what, from Geneva and everything like that. And that was, in a way, was my idea and was followed by the Americans. And that was what we were doing. And Callahan was very, very keen to have a Lancaster House conference, which is how Peter Carrington eventually settled it and did extremely well at it. Anyhow, there were two men who were interested figures in my life uh, in the Foreign Office. One was Field Marshal Carver, who I had asked to make a huge sacrifice and come out of retirement and be the commissioner in um, uh, Zimbabwe like somewhat similar to the role that uh, Dun uh, uh, not Duncan Sands, um, 
Christopher Soames played, and he agreed to do it. A great sacrifice and that sort of thing. And the other was a very senior um, diplomat in the Foreign Office. Uh, I respected him very greatly, who then later went on to be the head of MI6. And, uh, um, and he was at that time dealing with intelligence and had been in Africa and had been ambassador of Africa. And had these two men asked to come and see me late at night at my last appointment, 6.30. And I remember it very well. And I, when, I think nobody else in the room. And they said, you always said you'd never hold a conference, another uh, Lancaster House conference, unless it would work. And we're coming to tell you that it won't work to have one this coming December. And that we were talking October, November. And they said it in such a nice way, such a persuasive way. And of course, I suspect they guessed, but I knew that too. That Callahan was pushing, but Carter wanted it. Everybody wanted it. Ian Smith, surprise, surprise, wanted it. But it was too close to a general election, and that Margaret Thatcher was playing around on Africa and rather foolishly and irresponsibly, actually. And he would have come and busted up the conference. It would have failed. And so I said to them, "Well, give me a, a day or so. And I'll think very hard about what you said." And then I. Uh, went to see Callahan and I said, we can't have this, it won't, won't work. And we've got to somehow get the Commonwealth to say, postpone it. And so he sent uh, a Welshman, Sir Cledwin Hughes around and the Commonwealth all agreed. Then we set up the meeting in Lusaka, which Margaret Thatcher went to, somewhat afraid of, that somebody might throw poison at her, and Carrington handled and the then Commonwealth Secretary handled very well. And that set up really Lancaster House. So it was delayed by um, a complete year. And uh, of course, one wonders, but it, it, there's no doubt that was a good decision, not an ambitious decision. And I think that office maker the man, if you sit there and you feel that you, when that sort of thing happens and two people come and absolutely transparently display the arguments, all of which you know, really, but they bring them all together and challenge you to stop something happening, which, of course, you'd have been the centre of the whole act and everything like that. I'm not a saint, but every now and then you have to put ambition aside, and I think most people do, and if you look around, I'm not a denigrator of politicians. If you look at most people, they have tried their best, and uh, we shouldn't get too upset about them. I sometimes probably a bit too critical of um, poor old Tony Blair. I think it's a sadness, really, because he's obviously a talented man. But um, I think he couldn't step back from what was happening in America and Bush and Iraq and 9-11. Uh, it's a great tragedy, couldn't for him personally and for the country. The, the, the war in Iraq has had terrible consequences and will go on having them for a long time. Not think, least what we're seeing in Israel at the moment. Do you think part of the reason you're, you're quite critical of him is in a way you identify with him? I think I don't actually, you know, I don't think, I, there's never been much doubt that I've been a socialist. I think the health service is to me such a deep issue and of such a moral issue and so important that you can take a market out of something completely and that 
the market has to be there, then it should be a proper market. In that way, I'm rather more, some people say, right-wing economist. I believe markets are set to operate and you set a framework for them and you compete. And so, and you get much more effective products and also more, uh, by much cheaper. But on the health service, I'm, I'm really rather stubborn and I, I don't mind a little bit of bringing in private enterprise like, brilliantly done with this uh, woman who came in, uh, Mrs. Bingham, and uh, who came in from private uh, equity in the pharmaceutical area. I, mean, I was on the board of Abbott Laboratories, a big American pharmaceutical company for 15 years. But what she did was to play their own game. And I mean, it, it saved us. That's why we got these vaccines so quickly. And the government gave her the money. So she came with money. And you ask a foreign pharmaceutical company to bear all the costs of research. And you come in and say, well, we'll pay some of it. We'll take some of the burden with you. You'll get a bloody good deal. And the, this is what the Europeans don't understand. And you then come along and ask for a bloody good deal when you've not put any money up front at risk. And Britain put money up front and at risk. And she was a remarkable achievement. And we've had some very interesting enterprising and injured. I mean, the woman who now uh, runs the um, uh, authority looking at drug safety and re recognizing drugs, uh, are equivalent to the FDA in America. And we recognized Pfizer before the Americans. And one of the person very respected uh, man in America criticized her openly, publicly. And she said very simply, there are two ways of handling information. You either wait until you've all got it in and then you assess it, or you assess it as it comes in. In this situation, I thought the risest and quickest thing for us to do was to start assessing it as we came, but the checks and balances exactly the same. That American who published, who criticized her, apologized. And it, what it showed is imagination. It's normally perfectly reasonable. You wait till all information is, then you can set it about and do research. We weren't living in a normal situation. And by doing it earlier, we gained four or five months. Hugely important. I know I keep returning to the SDP, but I think as a former Labour member around the centre ground, I am fascinated as to why the Labour Party spends so much of its time in the wilderness. And I just wonder with the SDP, had things been done differently, might it have been more successful? Could it have ever usurped the Labour Party as firstly the opposition, and then could it have been Britain's effectively leading centre-left force that could have formed governments? I'm, I'm, I'm Plymouth-born, and the only other major political politician who was Plymouth-born was Michael Foote. I've known the feet, as we call them, the brothers <laughs> and their sister. I've known them for years, and I've watched Michael Foote. I've seen the letters he wrote when he was a constituency MP. I've compared them with the letters of other people who've been, you know, I... I know him and I don't trust him. And I didn't believe that he should ever be prime minister of this country. I know his views on defense. I know his views on many, many things. And that man was never fit to be prime minister. So I was bound, I, I refused to serve under him. I couldn't give him my loyalty. So when he won the election, fair enough, I stood aside. The key issue at that moment was Dennis Healy. If Dennis Healy had stood, toughly against him on a proper platform, saying effectively Michael Foote's not fit to be prime minister. He might have lost, 
but he'd been a leader within a year because within months, it was obvious to everybody. It was rather like with Corbyn. It took a little time to see, but they're not fit to be prime minister of the country. And it would have become quite obvious as it did become obvious. And if Dennis Healy had found and had stood and fought, I'd have stayed and fought with Dennis. Dennis was my boss when I was minister of the Navy, a wonderful person. And people will say, how do you speak about him? Think what Dennis said about him. I said, well, think what I said about Dennis. <laughs> I mean, we would, we would take the gloves off publicly and we're extremely rude about each other. But underneath it was a deep-seated friendship. And one of the things that touches me most was when Debbie and I went down and saw him only a few months before he died. And he took he's a great one with his camera. He took a wonderful picture of um, Debbie and we took a good picture of him. No, I mean, Dennis Healy was the obvious man to take on Michael Foote, but he has some ridiculous advice in him that he could win it by being soft and amenable. He couldn't. He had to be prepared to lose, but he would have been pulled back in before the 83 election, and we would have done very much better. The Labour Party could have been saved by Dennis. And also, when Dennis fought, he'd have fought on the real issues, the ones that really mattered. They had to get rid of, you had to get rid of trots, uh, people who were around, who were still in the Labour Party and never left. So when Mandelson and um, Blair and uh, these others talk, were these people in the party? Well, Corbyn's a classic example. He stayed in the party throughout the whole thing. I mean, I, I went to his constituency party at one stage, or maybe his next door one, in, um, in, 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 when the fighting days were on. Now, he's an honourable man. He holds his views consistently and truthfully. And for a moment, there was a small moment when people across a much broader section than you might imagine were prepared to trust Corbyn because he, he sounded fat. He was destroyed on Europe because he's always been against Europe. But that number two of his, I've forgotten his name now, um, he, he got into... No, 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 McDonald's. McDonald, yes. Well, he's, he's been on the wild left of the Labour Party, uh, um, you know, whether you call him Trotskyist or whatever your interests or whatever you want to be. He's always been like that. He's wonderfully smooth and friendly. And now he became a European. He didn't become a European because he was a European. He came because he could see this as a way to get power and perfectly reasonably. But Corbyn was still a man who didn't want this. So he called, he allowed Boris Johnson, he provided the uh, two-thirds majority for him and the Liberals, but it was really Corbyn. And he, he's openly said he didn't ask for a vote or anything. He just told the shadow cabinet that he accepted that the tests had now been done and that they can have a general election. So he did one good thing anyhow in his period of time. But I, 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 they have a core belief that is genuine. They believe in the NHS as much as I do. And I, I hand it to them and credit them. And they, I think, are genuinely interested in trying to do something about poverty. But they're not tolerant. And they are intolerant. And they are not true Democrats. They are not really ready really to accept the judgment of the ballot box. And so it was quite inevitable. They got all tangled up in that mess with the speaker and the conservatives and this whole business of trying to uh, avoid the uh, referendum. But in his heart of hearts, he stayed true. I think old 
um, Corbyn. So, uh, Something to be said for that, perhaps. Just on the SDP then, because the big narrative on the left is, oh, the SDP betrayed us and they handed victory to Thatcher in 83. And if it, it wasn't the left wing of the Labour Party that lost the 83 election, it was a mixture of the Falklands and these, you know, deserters. Uh, I guess... I'm not sure if I agree with that because the SDP would have taken votes from uh, across the spectrum, I guess, by virtue of being in the centre ground. But had the SDP handled its business differently, had you not had the leadership ructions between yourself and Roy Jenkins, had it been a smoother launch, had you not launched an alliance, do you think you could have had a bigger impact? Well, we didn't launch an alliance. It came later. I don't. I think it could have brought the Labour Party to its senses, yes. And I think that, you know, Roy Hastley took a different course to me, but I have great respect for Roy, and he's a proper socialist and an egalitarian in many respects. You needed people who stayed to fight within, and you needed people like us who are outside, who fight from outside. And I once said that actually before we broke up. Now, some people say it was always inevitable, that you could never have come together. I don't agree with that. Uh, politicians are pretty good at eating their words over that sort of stuff. And so the polemical and the uh, savage attacks, that's, that goes with being a blood sport. Um, I think you could have come together in friendship. I think that they, we nearly made it. it. We had to have a way of removing Foot and Ben. And Dennis Healy very nearly lost the Shaddock, sort he, he very nearly won. Uh, ben nearly beat Dennis Healy. If Ben had beaten Dennis Healy under um, Foote's leadership a year afterwards, then I think there would have been a difference. Mm. First, it would have been better if Dennis had fought Foot, But if uh, Ben had beaten Dennis once under Foot, people would have realised that the game was up and we would have somehow come back and had a SDP, Liberal, uh, Labour, what do they call themselves, a campaign committee on these. Because there were very many good people who stayed. You know, I don't claim any particular virtue for leaving or not. You had, some had to leave and fight. And some had to fight very toughly. And we were fighting... But you couldn't fight toughly and be in alliance with the Liberals because in their own constituencies, I've told you, they were needed, the Labour vote, so they were kind to them. Uh, there we are. You, you live with it. The results are odd. Um, but Margaret Thatcher was not possible to beat after the Falklands. Just like Boris is not possible to beat for at least a year in the British politics. They, they spoke for the moment and they rode the crest of the wave. Um, and she handled the Falklands disgracefully. I mean, Callaghan and I put a submarine down there. They should have had a submarine down there like we did in 77. But nobody, I, I remember, I learned something about politics. That, you know, I had a great friend who sadly died now as um, uh, political editor of the, of the FT for a while. And um, I was complaining that the committee on the examination of the Falklands had not paid enough attention to what Callaghan and I had done. And the more critical way both Carrington and she had handled the run up to the war. 
And he said, David, in the pub, they're only interested in one thing, have we won? <laughs> and politics loves a winner. And therefore, from for the average chair, and actually, quite rightly, she had handled it extremely well, the war, and was very stressed at various times. I saw her in Privy Council terms a couple of times and almost had to cheer her up. And um, she handled it brilliantly, and the, she was going to win hands up. So that was allowed, allowed a much more vigorous fight post, post Falklands War, actually, for the Labour Party, because we never could have won. And I think the realists would have come together and really uh, taken out the trolls. They had to be out of the party, excluded. No, 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 this uh, nonsense. And the Labour Party will not survive until they're out. And uh, Starmer's tried, you know, he's done very well on the Jewish issue because that was hugely debilitating. I mean, the Jewish population in this country is not very high anyhow. Traditionally, quite a number of them have been Labour Party, but we are not going to tolerate a major national political party having an innate a section who is anti-Jewish. Uh, of course, you understand why it's there. It's all linked up with this Israeli thing and Palestinians and all that. But you can't allow that to happen uh, because we didn't stand up and make this distinction there about you can't discriminate against a, a grouping of people like, like the Jews that we had Hitler. And see, this isn't a, a trivial matter. Corbyn, I think, really thinks it's a trivial matter and thinks it can be all explained by the fact that these people are just too pro-Israel and that he hates Netanyahu and he hates Netanyahu and he hates the inability of the Israelis to do anything about the Palestinians, which is all true. But doesn't mean you can take that step. So it was a fatal mistake. I, I don't think the fight will take place inside Labour. Uh, it, it, everything will depend on what happens to Boris and how he makes out in British politics. But he's untouchable at the moment. And um, probably that was Starmer's mistake. It, but it's very difficult when they're all wanting you to make score points every day, be tough and take him to this and do that and everything like that. And every now and then when he showed some sort of COVID spirit of trying to have a cross-party thing, these people didn't like that. Difficult circumstances. There are people of great talent in the Labour Party still. I have not given up hope that before the end of my days, I will see a Labour government back. Um. Just finally, we talked about Roy Jenkins. Shirley Williams very sadly passed away last month. Huge figure in British politics. Huge figure in liberal and, and left-wing politics in this country. We talk about how close you came to becoming Prime Minister. She was a very special talent as well. And she had was my candidate. Had she, was my candidate. she could have been Prime Minister. She could have oh, been. She should, she should have been. It was madness. She should have been the leader of us. And when Roy came in after with the Gang of Three, he promised me that he would live with Shirley as being the leader. But he didn't. I mean, he beat her. And to some extent, unfortunately, some of this is, you can't say fault, but she was just not in a good place, unfortunately. And uh, 
when she had to take the decision to fight Warrington. She should have fought Warrington. I begged her to fight Warrington. Then when they had the leadership election in the party, I didn't want to stand. I thought she would be far better. She knew that. I tried my best to persuade her. I delayed the nomination in order to get her vote. She was persuaded you could be president. She admits all this now wrong. We, we had two nice long holidays in Greece, uh, one six years ago, when she said that she, Debbie said, you, I'm going to leave you two alone now. You've got to sort out your problems between yourself. And her problem with me was that she'd come to see me on the Monday after the election when um, I was having to decide what to do and the calls for merger. And uh, my assistant had come out and said that I wasn't there, which she had done under my instructions, but Shirley could see me through the neck. <laughs> and she resented that. And she had every right. She was president of the party. And I, why didn't I see her? I was seriously looking at, could I work with the Liberal Democrats? Could we fashion a new party out of the Liberal Party in the SDP? And, it, it, you know, my, some of my best friends had lost their seats. There was nobody really who could talk to. And I was battling with this. If she had come in and spoken to me for 10 minutes, She'd have gone off and said, don't worry, David's, you know, he's really ambitious. He's looking at the question of merger. He thinks he could be the leader. I didn't dare see her. When I explained it like that, she understood it in a flash. And but it changed was... and transformed our relations. But 30-odd years, came... years later. 30-odd years later. It was years later. I never dared admit that, uh, like, I mean, because it was obvious I had to look at it. And anyhow, I wanted... Um, what I called a, a, an agreed divorce of the two sections. But I, I, I couldn't even carry the people who left with me, Rosie Barnes and John Cartwright and others. They all wanted to fight it and wanted to fight it. But I did say we'd never fight it on a legal argument that you have to get a 75% majority. I was in favour of the, of the ballot. And once we'd lost, I was clear that we'd have to go. You can't suddenly tell somebody that you have to become a liberal Democrat, a, 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 a de liberal Democrat when you fought an election and won it as a social Democrat in Plymouth. And you can't do the same to either Rosie Barnes or to um, John Cartwright. So we lived along and we tried, but it was by then over. Um, but Shirley was the most empathetic politician I know. She was absolutely built. I've said it before to you on this call to get the Northeast women, and it would have made the big, big difference. We wouldn't have won a lot of seats because on the uh, first past the post, that's very difficult. But we'd have dented Labour where it really mattered. I'll tell you one final story. On the week before the election, Michael Foote came down to Plymouth, the 83 election, and he'd been talking to the faithful. That's what the left do. They talk to big meetings and they just recycle the same things, great applause and tremendous enthusiasm and everything like that. And he arrives there and a friend of mine, who I'd said, stay in the Labour Party. I don't know whether the SDP can work. You're doing a great job on the city council. You stay there and we can sort this out later. And he meets Michael Foot on the Michael Foot says, right, he said, waving his stick, we're off to the housing estates, he said, off to him. No, 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 Michael, we've got this meeting arranged for in the centre of the city. Remember outside the marketplace, this is our high park. No, 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 out into the city. Of course, they knew what was out there. And they drove out into his own constituency a post-war council estate. And I tell you, there wasn't a Labour poster. And the whole thing was SDP. And he turned first white and then green. 
And by the time they got back into the city, he knew bloody well that they were not going to win the election. And he stepped off that platform thinking he could. Now, that happened in a lot of constituencies. It's not enough to turn Labour people to realise. They never took us, uh, there was never the derision that they treated to us to after the, seven, the, 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 the eight, 73 election, 83 election, 83 election. Because too many of them had seen solid Labour people, solid Labour constituencies. And still now they're not really learning the message when you get these results that they've got in the uh, red wall seats. They can't face up to the fact that we don't live in a class structure. The achievement of Labour was education. In the old days, the people who came and represented Labour in the constituency uh, couldn't go to university, left at 16 or 15, and that's the thing. And they were brilliant people, really. I can think of the dockyard leaders. This has changed. Labour has helped change. We're not a classless society, we're bloody close. We're not a racist team. They don't believe that this country has got institutional racism. When Sharman said it in that great judgment, the Metropolitan Police was racist. And it's to the credit of all that's done that I really believe that institutional racism is gone. It's still there and it needs to be got out of the police. But it's not there in the level and the overriding sense that it was there before. And Labour has to adjust to that. Anybody can vote Labour and anybody can vote Conservative and stop thinking that they can't vote Conservative. If they think their interests are better served by Conservatives, they'll vote Conservative. And if they genuinely want to come out of Europe and they provide them that, that's a big enough reason for them to do it. So they've got to get out, shake themselves out of it. It's the eternal verity is the fundamental socialism and generosity on which the NHS is formed and founded still remains. And you can still have passion for it. And where is that passion? Uh, once um, uh, Andy Burnham left being the health spokesman and um, he was brilliant at it. I agreed with every word he did. And we, we, we dented, we dented Lansley, but we didn't stop it. We've got to get out watch them like hawks, Hancock and uh, uh, well, they'll go back into the private sector before you know where you are, unless you're very, very careful. Where's Labour really on this issue? Where's the big campaign to take health service, learn the lessons? Why are we in this bloody trouble? We had bed occupancies of over 100% in normal times. And we certainly bed occupancies designed in 95, 90%, no spare capacity in hospitals. We used to have spare capacity in hospitals, that if there was a great traffic, a great disaster, you could deal with it. And we didn't plan for, we were warned we didn't have um, ventilators uh, four years before this disaster. The chief medical officer said it blurted it out in Doha, miles away from anywhere, unfortunately. What did they do? What did Jeremy Hunt do as Hunt Minister? Why weren't there more uh, ventilators? Why wouldn't we better prepared for uh, COVID? What happened to preventive health? Why did we de destroy preventive health, which was once a, literally the uh, admiration of the world? Liverpool, the great skills in which they discovered the water supplies and realised that that was the way to get better, healthier people. And the whole teams of tracing and this 
None of it existed for them. I, I don't feel mild about this. I'm not. A, I, I'm, I'm far from it. If we had had a proper NHS as we had it up until 1998, we would not have had such a difficulty of dealing and very nearly overwhelmed. And the, we had the spirit, and the spirit was fantastic within the health service and the people who came in and helped and everything like that. But we were not in a fit condition to deal with the COVID, and we could have been, and it was political neglect. David? Lord Owen, this has been an absolute treat. Thank you so much for coming on. On behalf of everyone who's, who's going to listen to this and love it, I really can't thank you enough. This has been a real honour. Okay. Thank well, you. We've been enjoyed it immensely. Oh, my God. Wasn't that absolutely brilliant? I mean... <sighs> I would really love to meet up with him and go for a bit. I love the fact that he still lives in Limehouse. Oh, well, if you've ever seen David Owen in Limehouse, email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. But my word. And so emotional about Shirley Williams. As you might have guessed, Shirley was someone I wanted to get on the show and um, made an approach, sadly, before she shortly passed away. Very lucky to have met her. One of the most special people. Um, really, this country's ever produced in politics and uh, just so powerful to hear David talk about her and isn't that such a great story <laughs> only five years ago 30 odd years after they go through that whole thing with the SDP alliance they're still just having to clarify and just reassure each other then their friendship can move on and not only is that tale just great because they're these two huge political figures I think it just gives everyone hope um, about whether it's a political, in the same way that Good Friday does, in a way, that it gives you a hope that these, these sometimes entrenched positions can be overcome, that there's, that there's always a way. Uh, that, that David Owen and Shirley Williams story is, is so sweet. But my God, he is still absolutely razor sharp. And what a defining figure. And great to hear him talk about spitting image. Obviously, I work on the new spitting image. So it's really... Uh, just as a kind of historian, of, let alone politics, but of satire, to talk to someone who was one of the most distinctive characters on it about how he felt was uh, uh, just fantastic. But all of it was. I'm just still grinning from ear to ear. You know, you can hear when people are smiling, and I'm sure you can hear it. I'm just absolutely thrilled. It never stops occurring to me how really lucky I am to be able to interview people on this podcast and how lucky I am that these incredible individuals are... Give me their time. I'm not so generous with it in two ways. Generous with their time in that I often go longer than the promised hour. But secondly, the quality that they provide in that time, just the openness, the honesty, the humour, is uh, it's just I, I just realise how lucky I am to be able to interview all these people and uh, how lucky I am that, that you all enjoy it and that you say such lovely things on iTunes. Seamless. So if you wouldn't mind... Um, I periodically forget to ask and I feel bad for asking every week but if you could leave us uh, a review on iTunes a nice one and say something nice it just helps push the podcast up the charts and then that means that even more people can listen to those pearls of wisdom from people like David Owen and Louise Casey and all the phenomenal guests that I have on this show and the reaction to the Louise Casey episode has been phenomenal and I'm glad so many of you agree with me that the two hours flew by 
and there was not there was nothing in there I could have taken out. I've been delighted at the reaction to it. Um, anyway, it's another long episode. So I'm still talking. I will see you on the 24th of May at the Garrick Theatre. Tickets for that are in the blurb in the show notes, mattford.com slash live. Have a great weekend and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra.